0: Helpful to you uh, over the last year and a half, we uh, have been teaching the book of Genesis since then uh, from the biblical creationist perspective, believing that everything that is written in scripture from Genesis to Revelation is God's word, and it is, is to be believed, and it can be believed, uh, distinctive from what is being taught today in public schools, and uh, in the world in general as far as evolution is concerned. So uh, we are going to continue on with that uh, perspective today. But uh, I want to focus my attention more not just in uh, the repopulating of a young earth, which is, of course, what is happening here in Genesis chapter 8, or at least the onset of that, but uh, deal with a much more serious issue spiritually But let's look at the text that we have before us, verses 15 through 19. And we'll pray and then get right into our study. And God spoke unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives, with thee. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee, of all flesh, both of fowl, And of cattle and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, And whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. Shall we pray? Father, once again, we ask for the outpouring, the anointing, and the blessing of your Holy Spirit upon each and every person in this room today. It is not only our desire to grow more in the knowledge of your word it is our desire lord as well to grow in our understanding of what our responsibility is in this time in which we live based upon what we read in your word even here in genesis today and i pray and i ask lord that through your spirit you'll stir our hearts not only to that wisdom and understanding that we need, but Lord, that you'd stir our hearts as to our own purposes, as to the uh, the very reasons why we are called in the day and time in which we live. And how, Lord God, how, how relevant all of this is for us today. Help us to keep focus upon that. And to stand, Lord, upon your truth, which is what will indeed set us free. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Question. How many times and over how many years does the Lord God, creator of the heavens and the earth... Have to warn generations of people that he is preparing to judge mankind for their sins, their disobedience, their rebelliousness towards him, and their rejection of him. How many times and over how many years does God have to warn people? You see, I'm, I'm simply amazed that with the Scriptures being so clear that God gave ample opportunity to the inhabitants of the earth to repent and to turn back to Him, that even at the, the very last minute, scores of people perished rather than seek the safety of the ark. That just amazes me. And what comes back into play at this point is the statement made by Jesus Christ Himself in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39. Something that we have been listening to and hearing all along in our study of the book of Genesis over the last year and a half. In Matthew 24, 37, Jesus said, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark... And knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. It is of increased importance for us to realize that in the days and times in which we live, all of this is pertaining to what happened to Noah. As in the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. Is this not the period in which we find that uh, Christ may come at any moment? We're certainly waiting for him. And I certainly hope that you're ready for that return. But the fact of the matter is, it does apply to us today. What we believe about the book of Genesis. And one phrase in verse 39 here of what uh, we, we just read that Jesus said, one phrase in verse 39 is rather impacting, and it is uh, very chilly. Jesus said, and knew not, speaking of the people, they knew not until the flood came. They knew not until the flood came. Jesus stated that the people were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. They were unaware. And we have to ask the question, did they choose to be unaware of the approaching storm and the seismic disturbances that were sure to have been prevalent at the onset of this flood? Did they choose to be unaware? I want to to drive that point home here. Because you see, in our day and time, we can also choose to be unaware of what's going on in the world. We don't really want to know all about the wars and all about the rumors of wars that are going on in this world so we can tune it all out. If we watch it on TV and we're tired of seeing all of these things going on about the economy in our own country and the, the things that are happening in Europe and the things that are happening in the Middle East and all of that, guess what? You can just turn your TV off. Some people choose to do that. Some people choose to be unaware of what's going on. If we don't like what's going on in our own city, if we don't like what's going on in what is next door here, and we've been tired of reading about it, well, you know, we can cancel the paper. Why? Because we choose to be unaware about it. So did the people choose to be unaware of the approaching storm? There was a lot going on with what God was preparing for that day when the storm came. So are we, are we not seeing the same attitude toward the warnings being given by the Lord through his word, through the signs of the times that are being exhibited globally uh, on a daily basis? Signs that uh, were predicted thousands of years ago and, uh, and are continuing to be fulfilled today? I mean, let's face it. What's happening in the Middle East today is no mere coincidence. It was predicted thousands of years ago in the scriptures. Not only what is taking place there, but who is, or who are the main characters, as far as nations are concerned. And you read prophetically from the major to the minor prophets, or or go all the way back, you know, I mean, we can even do it from the book of Genesis, and we'll see uh, in future uh, studies. But all throughout the writings of the Old Testament, there are references to what is going to be taking place in the days and times in which we live. The nations of Egypt and the nations of uh, uh, Jordan and uh, uh, Syria and Lebanon and uh, all of these nations mentioned in the scriptures. Possibly mentioned by different names, Ethiopia being put and other nations, but, but the fact of the matter is they're all mentioned. And they're all mentioned as enemies of Israel, and they're all surrounding Israel today. Is that a mere coincidence? Or is there something that God is warning us about? So you see, in answer to our first question as to how many times and how, over how many years does God have to warn people, the Lord warned the Noah's generation how long? Over a period of 120 years of the coming flood of judgment. 120 years. We're given for those warnings. Now, what is our generation's excuse? Because you see, the preparation for the next global judgment has been 2,000 years in the making, if we just consider the New Testament. But in fact, it's been nearly 6,000 years. We have been given the word of God from Genesis to Revelation to prepare us for the days in which we live. Are we taking that seriously, folks? Are we taking it seriously? You see, from the time that Adam and Eve succumbed to the temptation to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God has has given the warning as well as the remedy. He gave us not only the warning, but the remedy for escaping the judgment and obtaining His deliverance. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Where God judges now the serpent that tempted Eve and brought her to, you know, to fall into sin and to lead Adam into that very same sin. It says the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. But notice verse 15. Here's the warning. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel well this was the beginning of the warning but it was also the beginning of the remedy because judgment is going to come and judgment had to come because of this sin but God gave also the warning uh, I should say the remedy the remedy being that he was going to send a Messiah in fact we know that he was going to send his only begotten son God in the flesh the seed of the woman And he gives us a picture of the remedy in verse 21 of Genesis 3 when he says unto Adam and also to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. The remedy being you're not going to be able to save yourself. Blood has to be shed. Blood has to be shed. And from the animal that sheds its blood, God took coats of the skins and covered Adam and Eve with them. Because now, because of their sin, their eyes were open, and they were ashamed of their nakedness. Our eyes came to be open, and we were ashamed of the nakedness of our sin in this life. A sin that offended a holy God. But we cried for mercy. And we said with our mouth that we would confess the Lord Jesus Christ. And we believe in our heart that he's risen from the dead. And God said, when you do this, you shall be saved. God provided a remedy for the warning that was to come. And one factor that we'll talk more about in a moment is the faithfulness of God to keep his word. Well, the Lord kept his word when he had said to Adam in, in Genesis chapter 2 verse 17... When he said to him, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Thou shalt not eat of it, For in the day that thou eatest thereof, Thou shalt surely die. The result was that man indeed began to die. First of all, man would die physically. Adam was created perfectly in in, in the environment that God made for him. An environment that was perfect, an environment that was good, and man would live forever. But he was given one commandment. And eventually he would break that commandment. He would fail to keep God's word. And so he would begin to die physically. Ultimately though, man died spiritually and that he died immediately. Because you see, there was now that separation from God. And all that was, and all the good that had been given to man. Man was separated from it. God had him escorted out of the garden. And there would be pain, and there would be sweat, and there would be labor, and there would be affliction, and there would be, of course, death for everyone born into this world from then on. And death and pain and and suffering came into all that the Lord had created as an intrusion. It was an intrusion of the perfect environment of the perfect place and the perfect people that God had made. The ground became cursed. The nature of the animals and humans changed. The judgment that we know as a global flood demolished and changed everything on the face of the landmass of the earth. Everything According to scripture, what could have been one primary continent was catastrophically rearranged during the flood to finally become what we have today. You know, you could go throughout all of this world, even if you just go throughout all of this country. We have a beautiful country, you know. We have hills and valleys and beautiful things. We sing about it, right? Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain. We've got the Grand Canyon. It's a beautiful hole in the ground, isn't it? But it can't be as beautiful as what God created at first. And everything changed. Because as we read in Genesis 7-11, at the very end of the verse, it says, The same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. The great, or the fountains of the great deep were broken up. Which means that the earth began to, to, you know, to split. And water came from... Inside the earth. The canopy that uh, surrounded the earth began to collapse, which caused all the rain to fall for 40 days and 40 nights. Everything began to change. And in the rapidity of all of that, the water having to go someplace back into the ground and, and, and all, but nonetheless, it just changed the whole topography of the earth. Geography became different. The geology became different. Everything was changed. But as we saw last time, Noah and his family were in the ark for 371 days. 378, if you count the seven days, they were in the ark prior to the flood or the start of the storm. And, and, and they stayed there patiently, as we observed last time. They stayed there patiently until the ark rested on Mount Ararat. Now, Noah had heard God say, before going into the ark, he had heard God say, come into the ark. As the Lord was preparing the flood. But then he doesn't hear anything for that long period of time, over a year. As we also observed in the scriptures last time. But then God speaks again. And he says, go out of the ark. He says, come into the ark. And then when they finally rest, he says, go out of the ark. Now, last week we we mentioned that uh, the the invitation to come into the ark was, in fact, an invitation to salvation. The going out of the ark would be the invitation for our responsibility to witness the power of God. To go out and proclaim the word of God. To go out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to kind of focus our attention on that here today a little bit. But I want you to notice something, especially in the command given by God to go out of the ark. Did you notice when we read that? Did you notice that Noah didn't ask any questions? Did you take note of that? If you didn't, please take note of it now. Did you notice that Noah did not ask any questions? It's hard for us to kind of notice that because, you know, we're people who like to ask questions, even from God. Even when we know God is telling us to do something. We sense that God is saying something to us to do and we say, why God? Why that? And we become very analytical and we want to know, why did you choose me and why did you choose that particular thing to do? Couldn't somebody else do it? So we're good at asking God questions. God gives us a specific thing to do. And we say, well, Lord, are you sure? We're just that way, aren't we? None of you are saying yes. But you all are. And me too. Kind of a society in which we live. It kind of gets us to asking questions, you know. But what do we say about Noah a while back? Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And every time that God commanded Noah to do something, what did Noah do? He obeyed. Noah didn't ask any questions. God said, go out of the ark now. And I'm quite sure that Noah was glad to obey. He was glad to obey. Do you know why he was glad to obey? Because you see, when God has just destroyed the world as you knew it, And done so completely as God had done it. You're going to do what he says. Right? I mean, I would. I mean, that sets a little bit of fear in our hearts. And so there were no questions asked by Noah. Go out of the ark. Okay. I'm going. So why has it become so popular then to question God... As to his goodness, because there's so much suffering in the world. Why has it become so popular to question God? God, if you're a, if you're such a good God, then then why why can't we get rid of some of this suffering? Why why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there so much hunger in the world? Why is it? Why are there wars? Why are there this and that? You know what, folks? If you have to ask a question, please read this. Because when you finally read the Word of God, you're going to realize it's not God, it's us. The problem isn't God, the problem is us. We are sinful people. We were born into sin. And we do sin. It's our nature. When we're born into this world without Jesus Christ. But then again, we'll ask the questions. Or there are those who question the Lord. Or I'm sorry, not so much the Lord, but they question the existence of God himself. A lot of people are doing that today. I'm not really sure that there's a God. There might be a God, but if there is a God, I mean, then why is there such a world as we see? We question the existence of God. You know, it's interesting that uh, in the book of Romans, we've and we've been studying the book of Romans, by the way, on Wednesday nights. And it's interesting that uh, I didn't put that together as, you know, as to have the two books in conjunction, but they are so closely tied together as we've been going through both books that uh, it's amazing to see what God is teaching us about all of these things. But in the book of Romans, when we were back in chapter 1, who knows how long ago that was, but when we were in chapter 1, one thing we learned that the Apostle Paul taught us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that even though there will always be people who will call themselves atheists or even agnostics, if they want to call themselves that, that even though they may call themselves that, they still know that there's a God. They still know that there's a God. And what's going to come out of all of this when we get to to seeing what's happening in the book of Revelation, that when all of a sudden all of the the judgments that are going to be coming, the, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, when all of these things start to happen on the earth... We praise God. You know that the Lord will take us as an ark did, out of the way of all of that judgment. But when the judgment begins to happen, all the people that say there is no God, that they have no trust in God, they have no desire to know God, while all of these judgments are happening, where are their fists going? They're going up and cursing God. I thought they didn't believe they do believe or at least they do know that there's a God they just choose not to believe and that will become more and more evident in people part of the problem really when it comes down to atheism today is whether it be you know humanistic uh, evolutionary type teaching which has infected our our society, and our schools for the last 70 years or so. It comes down to the fact that the church needs to become more of what God called us to be, which are witnesses of the truth of Jesus Christ. All that aside, more people today question the word of God as it pertains to the creation of all things. And so, again, we have this evolutionary uh, foundation from the standpoint of our educational system. But they start questioning the word of God as as being something that's anti-science and anti-logic. Well, the Bible is not anti-science and it certainly is not anti-logic. But at the same time, it does show that God can do things that are not natural. Because he does things that are supernatural, above what can be seen or done in nature, God can accomplish and God can do. So with all of those questions in mind, does that mean that the evil that is multiplied in the world today, which was predicted in the Bible, and the geopolitical alliances that exist today, but have been prophesied in the scriptures for a thousand years, are they merely coincidental? Or does, it, or does it mean that if we can believe the words of Jesus both about Noah, because Jesus talked about Noah and spoke of him as a real person. So does it mean that if we can believe the words of Jesus both about Noah and about himself, then uh, we can believe that God created the heaven and the earth just as it is recorded in his word. Well, evolutionary humanistic science has not come up with a solution for the problems of the earth or even of the universe. If we have that particular conflict in mind to, between uh, creation and evolution, or the fact that crea- creation was, was was something done by God, as he says in his word, or everything is natural and, and, and all, then have they come up with a solution for the problems of the earth, or the problems of the world? And by the way, the solution isn't green. It is something that we certainly should think about it because we are stewards here on this earth and we should take care of it but that's not the point the point is what is to come is there a solution by evolutionists and the humanistic ideals for the for the sake of the earth and of the of the universe well they don't have a solution but God does God does have a solution and it's a very simple solution And it begins with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. That light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil, hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, or be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. This is not just a statement of faith. It is not just a statement of of belief. It is not just uh, an evangelistic tool. It's really prophecy as well. Because we live in a time today when it is more evident than ever before that men love darkness rather than light. It is a time today that uh, everyone that does evil hates the light. You try to tell somebody in the world about Jesus and what's the first reaction? You're judging me. Get away from me. I don't need to hear this. I don't even believe. And they hate the light. What is the light? Light, first and foremost, is Jesus Christ himself who died for their sins. But a part of that very same light is the church and the word of God. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. The world hates the light. Therefore, it hates the truth that God gives about salvation. It hates the truth about what God says about eternity. This is prophetic. And they neither come to the light lest his deeds should be reproved. There are many who have rejected Jesus Christ. But I thank God that I'm in a room today with a bunch of people that, did, that maybe at one time rejected the truth but came to the light and guess what? You received the Lord. Is that not a miracle? Is, not, is that not something that God did supernaturally? Because one day we did not understand the word of God, the next day all of a sudden our eyes are open and we can understand it. Is that not something God can do? And so it is essential for us to believe what God says from Genesis to Revelation. And this is why it has been so critical for us to take the time since January of 2010 to study this book in the manner that we're doing it. But as we continue on in our study of this particular passage, let's first of all deal with the faithfulness of God. Because God is always faithful. I want you to notice in verses 50 through 17 of our text, it says that God spoke unto Noah and said, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife, thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth, and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. We know that the Lord had promised to save Noah through the awful judgment that was to come upon the earth when he tells him in, in Genesis 6 verses 17 and 18, And behold, I even I do bring a flood of waters upon the earth. He says, I'm, I'm going to bring this flood. "...to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons, and thy wife, and thy sons' wives with thee." And God was faithful. He was faithful. And his faithfulness had been proved throughout the deluge of water that had flooded the earth. He had saved Noah uh, through the judgment... And now God's faithfulness faithfulness was to be proved in in the uh, new instructions that he was about to give uh, Noah. And Noah's salvation was about to be completed. Because I want you to take note of one of the instructions. We've already read it. Go forth out of the ark. Take note of that instruction. Go forth out of the ark. This was to be the final step of deliverance from the judgment of God. He didn't tell him to stay in the ark. He said, go forth from the ark. So Noah was now to step out of the ark onto the earth. But I want you to consider the apprehension and the fear, the thoughts and the wondering about what lay outside for Noah. I don't think we think about this enough. We might not have even thought about it at all. But he's been in the ark for over a year. What does he expect to see? The earth had been utterly devastated and wasted by the flood. So you can, you can pretty much consider those thoughts. You see, they were in this. They were in this ark. They really couldn't see what was going on. As a matter of fact, remember the window doesn't open until the ark rests. But they could certainly hear, and they could smell, because let me say, death smells. Actually, death stinks. and you can wonder just what he may have been thinking in that ark yes he waited patiently on the lord we know that he that you know i'm sure that he had a, a communion with with god in in that time but a years a long a long time inside of one place but notice now the stress And the force of God's instructions. In essence what God was saying to Noah was go forth from the ark and do it now and do it immediately. Don't fear to the point of you hesitating or delaying. Your day of deliverance and salvation has arrived so go forth now. That's the emphasis of of, of the original language. Go now. Then the Lord commanded, bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee and of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle, of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. Noah and all all the survivors of God's awesome judgment, which included, of course, the animals as well, were now to build a new life upon the earth. The Lord had been faithful to his word and to his promise. He had judged the lawlessness and the immorality and the violence of men. But in mercy, he had saved those that he had promised to save. Those who truly believed and followed him. You know, God didn't forsake Noah and his family. It wasn't as if he put him adrift on this particular boat and said, I'll see you in about a year and a half. Or I'll see you in about a year and a month. Noah never was forsaken by God. And his family was never forsaken by God. And while there may have been times over the long days of the, of the terrifying judgment when they feared what would happen to them, the Lord remained faithful. Remember verse 1. It says, the Lord remembered Noah. That is not told to us because the Lord might have forgotten Noah. It is to remind us always that God knows us. God remembers us. Now. The day came when He completed their long-awaited salvation and deliverance. And this is the great lesson for us today, that we should never despair. We should never allow a trial or a temptation to overcome us. He will always deliver us if we only trust and patiently wait on Him. He will deliver. He will save. Because He's faithful to His promise. To those who believe. And to those who trust. Listen, our, our redemption, our, our glorious salvation, that's drawing near. We have to understand salvation from the from the scriptural position or the scriptural perspective that salvation is not just a present thing. The Bible teaches us that we were that we have been saved. That's a pre, that's a, a, a past tense. Therefore, it's a past experience. We have been saved. The Bible tells us that we are being saved. That is a present experience. And the Bible also mentions that we will be saved, which is a future experience. That is the completeness of our salvation. And one day we will be saved out of this earth, out of this world that is going to be destroyed. No longer by flood, but by fire later. A new heaven and a new earth will be made. And a new Jerusalem where righteousness will dwell. And all of these things, God has promised and God will be faithful to do. But he's, you know, our salvation is drawing near. But God is faithful. And he is going to complete our salvation and our deliverance from this sinful world and the terrifying judgment that is to come. There was a judgment then, there will be a judgment later. Now, the Lord is going to complete our redemption. Paul says in in Philippians 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So that is something that we can say God will be faithful in doing. He's going to complete the work that he began in us. And we, of course, have to continue to do our part, which is believe and to trust and to live our lives right before God. In the little one-chapter letter by Jude, verse 24, Jude says, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That is a reminder of God's faithfulness to keep us from falling away from him. Although we are to do our part, nonetheless, he wants to present us faultless uh, before the presence of his glory. Will he do that? Yes. Why? Because God's faithful. At the same time, we have to be faithful to our particular calling of obedience. We need to obey the Lord. So there may have been times in the ark when Noah and his family felt God was too far off. Some of you sometimes think in your life, you're going through some experience and you think, God's too far away. Where are you, God? I cry for you, but I don't know that you're hearing me. Or we may think that God is out of reach or out of touch with us. Just kind of left us out here to float as they were floating on the waters. Or or that God is not concerned enough. We think that God's more concerned with other people's problems than with our own. Listen, God's big enough to be concerned about all of our problems. That's an awesome God that we serve. And that's the awesomeness of the God that we serve. He's that big. He's just as concerned about your problems as mine. We sometimes feel that God has forgotten all about us, but He hasn't. God has not forgotten. He knew all about Noah and his family and the animals that he brought to Noah. He knows all about us. He knows every trial and temptation that we face. And he cares for us. He promises to look after us if we only trust him and live with him. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Are you hungering and thirsting after righteousness? You'll be filled. Because God's faithful. In Matthew six thirty three, Jesus said, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto thee. Is God faithful? Then seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. Peter said in 1 Peter 5-7, casting all your care upon him, because he cares for you. He cares for you. I love Proverbs 3, verses 5-7. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes, fear the Lord and depart from evil. May I say to you that that is something that the church of Jesus Christ and people within the body of Christ today are pushing aside sometimes because they're more concerned about what they're receiving in this life rather than realizing what they are to be for God with their lives. We're told to fear the Lord and depart from evil. But why is there so much evil in the church? Because we're not doing what the Lord has called us to be. To shine as lights in the world. We are human. Noah was human. And yet it says that the, that the, that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We can find favor in the eyes of the Lord. We just need to be obedient. And we need to know the times in which we live. So from God's faithfulness then comes our obedience. And that we see in Noah as well. Because in verse 18 it says, And Noah went forth. That's obedience. And Noah went forth, and his sons and his wife and his sons wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth, after their kinds went forth out of the ark. Noah went out of the ark just as God had instructed him. The impact, by the way, of such a moment could never be adequately or fully described. The impact of Noah just doing what God commanded him to do. But let's consider the scene as best as we can. Because I think this is what we sometimes don't realize about that moment. The earth had been devastated by an enormous flood, a flood so great that it had covered even the highest of mountain peaks. The vegetation of the earth, the forests, the trees, the bushes, the fruits, the grasses of the earth, most had been uprooted and destroyed. The only thing that remained was seed. Only seed remained. Seed that had been left scattered all over the earth as the waters had receded into the lakes and the rivers and the caverns and the seabeds of the earth. And then bones, bones were probably scattered here and there among the debris. Many of the carcasses would have been decayed or or been eaten by the sea creatures over the year of the flood. Most everything else would have been buried from the convulsions that had taken place in the subterranean uh, crust of the earth from the erosion caused by the rushing waters as they flowed and settled into the beds of the earth. The point of all of this is that when Noah stepped out of the ark upon the earth, he stepped out upon a devastated earth. In doing so, he confronted the stark reality of sin. He confronted the stark reality of sin, how terrible it is, how awful the results of sin are. He confronted the stark reality of the judgment of God, How terrible it is and how awful the wrath of God is. He confronted as well the stark reality of God's love and salvation. Of how God will save a person who truly believes and who truly follows Him. No one knew this. For he had believed that he had followed God. And there he stood having just been saved through this terrifying judgment of God. He was bound, you see, he was bound to be gripped with a renewed reverence and respect for God. Stop there and think about that point for a moment. He was bound to have been gripped with a renewed reverence and respect for God. A renewed reverence and fear and awe of God. So these, these things are lacking today in a lot of people who claim to be believers in Jesus Christ. Reverence and respect for God. The Bible says God never changes. God never changes. God is holy, holy, holy. He is righteous, he is just, he is true. It never changes. We thank God, He is merciful and gracious. And loving because we see that in Jesus. But you know, God is God and needs to be honored, and respected, and reverenced in fear. The fear of the Lord, the Bible says, is the beginning of wisdom. To understand that is to understand the times in which we live and how we need to be before Jesus comes again. Noah was gripped with this renewed reverence when he sees what God can do. When God says, I'm going to do this. You get into the ark. When he gets out of the ark, he says, wow. This is heavy. I don't know that Noah said that, but I mean, I said that. It's heavy. It's a heavy thought. But may I say that Noah was also gripped with a renewed determination and commitment to obey and serve God as never before. The first thing he does when he gets out of the ark is he builds an altar and he worships God. The first thing that he does is he honors God. What's the first thing we do when God delivers us or rescues us from something? Don't have to worry about that problem anymore. We should be on our knees saying, God, how merciful you are to such a creep as me. When God speaks and shows us his will, we must obey and obey immediately. You know what we're to be obedient about as as believers in Jesus Christ? We're to be obedient to what the Lord called us to do. He said, believe in my son, Jesus Christ. Believe and trust in the Lord. He's fulfilled the law for you. You're no longer under law, you're under grace. But shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Book of Romans, by the way, Wednesday nights. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. No, we need to obey the, obey the Lord. We must do exactly what God says, even if we do not know what lies ahead. Noah didn't know. Noah had no plan. He just said, Lord, you tell me, I'll go. We must do exactly what God says. We must do the will of God despite the questions and the unknowns that may lie ahead for each of us. Let me give you a quick rundown of this understanding of of obedience from Genesis through to the New Testament. I'm not going through every chapter of the Bible, by the way, just a few selected ones. Genesis 6.22 about Noah. Noah just says, thus did Noah. Noah. According to all that God commanded him, so did he. May I ask you a question, was Noah human? Was Noah human? Alright, you know what? So are we. Guess what? If Noah could obey God, so can we. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine to his very own people he says if you will obey me you will be my peculiar treasure obedience comes with a tremendous benefit package deuteronomy 26:16 says this day the lord thy god has commanded thee to do these statutes and judgments thou shalt therefore keep and do them with all thine heart and with all thy soul we're not to be half-hearted when it comes to obeying god especially in the days and times of which we live Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord says to Joshua, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe, to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Again, the benefits of obedience. A very powerful and and somewhat ominous verse of Scripture is 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. Samuel confronting the king of Israel, Saul. Saul should have been obedient to what God had wanted. He took matters into his own hands, and and Samuel has to come to him and say, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. And if we think that all of the verses of obedience are in the Old Testament, go to Acts chapter 5, verse 29. When Peter and the apostles and and, and the disciples are are beginning to get persecution from the scribes and the Pharisees and and, and all. And they're being told that you can't do this and you can't do that anymore here. That Peter has to say this to them. He says, we ought to obey God rather than men. We ought to obey God rather than men. And then lastly, in Hebrews 5, verse 8, Paul, speaking of Jesus, says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, which tells us that even Jesus humbled himself to the point of as one growing in flesh, yet not in sin. He learned obedience. Our greatest example, then, of needing to learn obedience, Jesus humbled himself. obey and the world just can't understand any of this the world just can't understand the god who created all things by the word of his power doing so in six 24-hour days placing all of the stars and the planets in their orbits creating such fascinating creatures and doing so out of his great love for the pinnacle of his creation which was man himself The world considers believers in God and in Christ as irrational in our beliefs. But what bothers God's critics the most is that we who are believers see that the key to His character is actually divine humility. Divine humility. God the Father humbled Himself in creating out of nothing and so how interesting it is that man is just mud made in his image. And God the Son humbled himself and dying on the cross. And in that picture we see holiness made sin because the Bible says that Jesus was made sin for us. Who knew no sin, by the way. And even God, the Holy Spirit, humbled himself in writing scripture through men. The Bible says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. In other words, all scripture is God breathed. Nonetheless, for the 66 books of the scriptures, 40 authors were chosen. Which tells us that the infinite is speaking to the creature through the creature. That's divine humility. The world doesn't understand this. But the church needs to understand this. And the church needs to understand where we are today in light of all of the prophecies leading to the coming of Jesus Christ. We can no longer act as if, you know, we are uh, choosing to be unaware of what's going on. There are segments within the body of Christ today trying to say, you know, much of the word of God is, you know, some of it is true. Certainly a lot of the moral issues are, are important for us to kind of take hold of and the social issues that we need to do. But, you know, it's hard to believe that, uh, you know, that God created the world the way he said it. I mean, it's just, you know, maybe it's just a metaphoric. And... Listen, if that's the way it is, then we can't believe any of the word of God. We have to believe it or not. But if for sure Jesus promised to come again and all of the prophecies leading to Jesus' first coming were fulfilled, I would say that when Jesus says, I'm coming again, that he's going to come again. And I'm sure that all the prophecies dealing with the nation of Israel today and all of its enemies is not a coincidental thing, but was prophesied thousands of years ago, then we should take note of that. Take note of it. And if this just doesn't, you know, if this just isn't your cup of tea, we've got to pray for you. I used to say something long ago, and I remember actually being something I, I read in a track almost 40 years ago. But uh, I've often said this to a lot of people. If what I'm telling you is not true, then you've got nothing to lose. But if what I'm telling you is true, then you need to get right with God. And you need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. If it's not true, you lose nothing. But if it is true, you'll lose everything if you don't come to Jesus. Jesus. That's the bottom line. Was the first judgment real? Yes, it was. The earth cries that out every day. Is God going to judge the world again? Is he going to judge the living and the dead? Yes, he said he would. It's about time we get serious. Before we close, I have one more video. It was actually the first video of of this whole passage, but I chose to put it last for this reason. To awaken us. That wasn't me. Let's watch it.